Welcome everyone back to season three of the Eccles Business Buzz podcast. I'm so glad that you're here with us this season. My name is Francis Johnson and I'm your new host. I hope you'll join me this season as we explore the topic of continuous curiosity. We'll talk about what curiosity is, why it's so important, and what roadblocks sometimes prevent us from being curious in our work, in our homes, and in our communities. We'll also hear from guests who use curiosity to pursue something new, a new degree, a new profession, or a new passion. Today, I'm joined by Glenn Kreiner, who is the chair of the Department of Management here at the David Eccles School of Business. Glenn is also the L.S. Skaggs Presidential Chair in Business Ethics Management. His award-winning research focuses on our identities at work, mindfulness, work-life dynamics, and ethics. Today, we'll be chatting together about the relationship between mindfulness and curiosity and how we can all work to develop what Glenn calls a beginner's mind. Welcome, Glenn, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Well, I thought to get us started, we're talking about some kind of ambiguous topics, mindfulness and curiosity. I thought it might be useful to get some definitions working for these concepts. So let's start with mindfulness. When you use the term mindfulness in your classes or in your conversations, what does it mean? I always like to use the definition that John Kabat-Zinn uses. He's the person who's largely responsible for bringing mindfulness into the Western world over these past few decades. And he talks about a few different components. The first one is present moment awareness. Present moment, uh-huh. not what was in the past, not what's coming down the pike, and awareness or attention. And we're doing that on purpose, not just by chance, not our mind wandering and bouncing around, but we're choosing to pay attention to something on purpose. And we're trying to do that without judgment, meaning we're trying to just experience what's happening rather than having an immediate knee-jerk reaction to, I like it, I don't like it, I like this component, I don't like that component. We're just trying to experience what is happening in this present moment. So it sounds like we're talking about right now, paying attention on purpose without bringing any of our own baggage into the experience Yes. Sounds so easy, but it's not. (laughs) Easier said than done. Absolutely. Is there an example you use when you're teaching about mindfulness of a circumstance where it can be applied? I think most often people think about mindful moments when they're in a stress situation. So that could be a contentious meeting that they're having at work, or it could be a frustrating interaction at home with the spouse or partner or child. You sort of immediately think of an angsty, sort of uptight situation as mindfulness kind of being able to come to the rescue, right? So we think about really simple things like taking a few deep breaths. If you're sitting in a meeting and people are really frustrating you, either they're not listening to your ideas or they're demeaning your ideas, sometimes we can feel that in our bodies, just like we might be carrying it on our shoulders or our heart is pounding. And so part of mindfulness is being attuned to the body, those physical senses, because the more we can recognize what's happening with us and to us in the here and now, the more likely we can take constructive steps. And I feel like that's really in the sort of zeitgeist, I guess, when we talk about mindfulness, that's what we think about, right? Like Mm -hmm. taking deep breaths or meditating, this kind of concept of self-care. But what if we took it a step further, 
applying this principle before we're in a stressful situation? Mm -hmm. How can we integrate it more fully into our educational experience or our work experience, not just in those super tense moments. Yeah. One of the things we talked about in a paper we had published recently is the idea of mindfulness capacity. That's something that can be built. I'm kind of like putting water into a reservoir. You know, mm-hmm. if the reservoir is dry, you don't have any water left. So we try to think about how do we build a mindfulness capacity so that in those stressful moments, we can call upon our mindfulness skills, right? If we want to be creative or curious or think about ourselves or our relationships, we can draw upon those mindful practices. So part of that is to build in exercises over time. Meditation is the one that most people immediately think of. And those meditations could be self-guided, meaning you're just kind of by yourself. You set a timer and you try to just relax and focus on one thing or just notice the thoughts that come to your mind. Or you might use a guided meditation, which could be a YouTube video or an app like Headspace. And those are usually good, especially for beginners. It's really hard to just sit by yourself and do nothing. (laughs) But to hear an audio of someone kind of coaching you to pay attention to your breath or do some counting or notice parts of your body, that's usually helpful. So one thing to do is those meditations. And that builds meditative strength and mindfulness strength, so to speak, over time. Kind of like going to the gym, but for your mind. Mm -hmm. We can also think about practices like journaling. So writing down our thoughts to be more aware of them rather than the sort of the racing of the mind that's always happening, it puts words around your experiences and that can help you be more aware of what has happened or what is happening to you in the present moment. And then things like yoga, physical exercise, yoga, stretches, where we're focusing on that mind and body connection is also another really good way to build up mindfulness capacity. You mentioned, Glenn, this idea of a reservoir, very pertinent metaphor for us here in a drought. I think we can all really understand what that means. And that as we build our reservoir of mindfulness, it gives us more space to be creative or to be curious, which is the theme of the podcast this season. So talk now, if you would, about that connection between mindfulness and curiosity. How does filling this mindfulness reservoir give us the space and the tools to behave in a curious way? There's so many ways that we can connect the dots between mindfulness and curiosity. So for example, with relationships, let's just start with that one as a concrete example. Some of the research that we have done, we interviewed mindful leaders. In other words, people who did mindfulness practices and then tried to bring those practices into the workplace. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we found with mindful leaders is they don't just keep the mindfulness at home and private. They translate the benefits of mindfulness into the workplace in terms of interactions with others and in building relationships with others. So curiosity can play a role in that because mindfulness allows us to ask questions about those interactions. So if you're having a hallway conversation and we're mindful of whom we're talking with and what their needs are and what they're saying, we're actively listening, that naturally can breed a sense of curiosity on our part rather than having a more selfish oriented conversation, right? So if I'm mindful and really present in that conversation, at least 50% ought to be about the other person. Well, then that means we should be asking questions. Questions are at the heart of curiosity. Mm -hmm. So as we mindfully listen to other people and try to be present in those conversations, 
any of these conversations or contexts, we can bring mindfulness in to listen carefully and ask lots of questions. It seems like that is also an opportunity to leave this baggage behind that we talked about before. It's difficult to remove our own experiences or existing biases from these conversations and interactions. But if we approach it mindfully and let that then spark a sense of curiosity about the person, we can maybe remove some of that judgment about why they're presenting in a certain way, why they're responding in a certain way, and maybe have a more productive interaction. Absolutely. And the judgment piece that you mentioned is so important because we talked about how non-judgment's kind of a key component of mindfulness. Well, if we think about how mindfulness builds our capacity over time, one of the things it's building is our ability to not judge ourselves in our own mindfulness practices, uh-huh. right? So we're, we're not going to beat ourselves up for mistakes. We're going to notice them and say, okay, well, what can I do better? Right? That's a more non-judgmental way to treat ourselves. Or when negative thoughts come in about ourselves or our self-esteem, we can notice them and just respond and say, okay, well, that was a negative thought. It may or may not be true. I don't have to accept it. I don't have to judge it. The better we are at that for ourselves, what our research shows is that the better we are at doing that with other people mm-hmm. also. That's so interesting that we really have to start with ourselves. We can't extend mindfulness or curiosity to anyone else until we have cultivated that sense of patience and curiosity about ourselves. Yeah, the more that we practice, the more we figured it out and listened deeply to our own selves, we can spill that over to other people, which is really cool because I think one of the things that people get wrong about mindfulness is they think, oh, that's kind of a selfish thing right? Oh, Oh, you're taking time for yourself. Like, I need my time. I need to meditate. No, no, no. That's just the beginning. Yeah. I think especially in a workplace context where productivity can be such a powerful benchmark, we feel like we have to be doing, doing, doing to prove our worth. I can see how it would be difficult to say, I'm going to take this time for myself that then becomes a skill I can extend to others And I'm going to trust that it will ultimately increase my productivity and my potential to do a better job. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is one of the things in sort of a business school context that we always caution people, like, what's the motive behind doing the mindfulness? And it should truly be to help the employees because they are deserving of these principles and practices that can help them. Yes, there's a lot of research showing positive effects on productivity, on wellness, lower absenteeism, lower turnover. Yes, yes, and yes to all of those things. But if that's the main motivation, then we get nervous, right? And so we kind of caution management and leadership to say, don't do this as sort of the next thing to try to eke more out of your employees. What is a positive way or the right way that mindfulness could be incorporated by those leaders up and down the chain? There's a lot of ways to answer that question. It's a great question. We can think about at the individual level, which could be any employee, any manager, any leader. So we want to say, well, what is that person doing for their own practices? We would want them to adopt it as a bona fide approach to their culture that they participate in rather than simply providing training 
and hoping it goes well, right? Mm -hmm. So with that, starting at the top level with management and leadership, we would hope that they adopt those principles themselves. And then what we would see is a transformation in the way that they're communicating with people. They're bringing in that patience. They're bringing in that active listening. They're bringing in that non-judgment. But then we'd also want to provide training for people throughout the organization so that people are on the same page. One of the things we found in our study was people would say, my unit is really good with mindfulness. They've really embraced it, but the whole organization hasn't. And Mm. so we try to be really present with others, but we're not getting it back. So Mm -hmm. the more that we can think about sort of culture shift and reinforcing mindfulness as part of the culture, then there's that sort of positive synergy as opposed to a scattershot approach. I think it's also true the opposite can happen if I'm in a very stressful team environment or a stressful company environment that that can spread as well, right? I'm just thinking of like mornings in my house when (laughs) I'm running really late and then it's like, kids, get your lunches, get your backpacks. And then by the time we get to school, everyone is already done, you know, ready to just give up. And it started with me usually. (laughs) So we have to be mindful on both ends, right? If I'm in a situation where I'm feeling a lot of stress, maybe personally in my workplace, that's the time to employ the skills that I've developed on an individual level and say, let me stop this before I spread the wrong feeling. Absolutely. Researchers call it emotion contagion. Yeah. And I think this is a great connection between mindfulness and curiosity because to be mindful in that moment, I have to be a little bit curious about why I'm responding that way. Is it because I'm running late? Is it because I'm stressed about what's waiting for me at work? Is it because I'm tired? We have to ask some questions to then pick the right tool to reset in that moment. One of the things you mentioned at the beginning of our time together was the idea of beginner's mind. Yes, yeah. And the idea of beginner's mind is that we try to look at a situation or a problem as though we're brand new to it, even if we've done it a million times. So your example of the frenetic morning would be an example. Something as simple as brushing your teeth could be an example. Imagine you've never brushed your teeth before. <laughs> as silly as My it kid's dream. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> right. Yeah. I gotta brush my teeth again. Oh, come on. Right. I did yesterday. <laughs> They're not curious about that process, that's right. for sure. So it's something as simple as that, you know, Tonight, do it as an experiment. It's just kind of a fun way to test out this idea of beginner's mind. So when you reach for the toothbrush, Just look at that toothbrush and say, why do I have this toothbrush? There's a lot of choices with toothbrushes. There's the electronic, there's non-electronic, there's soft bristle, medium bristle, there's different brands. Like, why is that toothbrush even in your hand? Kind of deconstruct that. When you go to put the toothpaste on, why do you have that toothpaste? There are so many choices of toothpaste. Why do you have that? Do you put the water on the toothbrush or not? Where do you start? Are there places that you're brushing really hard versus soft? Are there any parts that you miss? What angle are you holding the brush at? All kinds of questions that we could ask ourselves. And it seems silly, but it helps to illustrate this point that we get into routines and the routines put us onto autopilot. And when we're on autopilot, there's no curiosity. We might be perfectly fine with the way we brush our teeth, but translating this to the workplace, we could ask ourselves, well, how do I run my team meetings? Have I been doing it the same way for five years? 
is it really the best way? Maybe I should have a beginner's mind about the way that I do my team meetings. I could be asking other people the way they do their team meetings. I could ask, why are we even having a meeting? Why are we having it this often? Why are we having it this time of day? Pretend you don't know how to do something or pretend you've never done it before. Because in the eyes of a beginner, there's lots of possibilities. Mm -hmm. But if you think you're an expert, there aren't many possibilities. You've, you think you've already figured it out. So that beginner's mind is a really wonderful tool for curiosity and creativity because it helps you throw assumptions out the window. I love that. What about setting aside time for curiosity that's not attached to a task? You know, the first five hours of my day, I'm going to get through all my tasks. And then my sort of reward is this curious time built into my day. So maybe I block out an hour where I'm just sitting at my desk or in my home office, mm -hmm. apparently thinking about nothing, but just giving my mind time yeah. to wander or make connections. Is that a way to also increase our mindfulness and curiosity? Say, this is my mindfulness time. Absolutely. A lot of the people that we interview, these mindful leaders, they talked about dedicated time for things like that. And it manifests in a lot of different ways. One person talked about how it was walking his dog. Like mm. just walking his dog every day was, you know, he didn't take his phone or his watch, but it was this time reserved for like, he didn't have to think about anything, but of course he did, right? Yeah. But he didn't have to. And that was the sort of a giving himself a luxurious permission to not have to be focused on a task. And so we can choose to focus our attention on specific things that we're curious about, or to your point, we can just have blocks of time and say, well, I'm going to be really open, have open awareness and be in a curious state. I usually think of my best ideas when I'm not trying to think of my best ideas. Yeah, it's the shower <laughs> principle, right? Exactly. Why does our best idea always come in the shower? Exactly. Let's talk about the flip side. We've talked about lots of personal practices that then we can extend to our coworkers and our families and mindfulness that allow us to sort of take a step back, understand our reactions and respond in a curious way. What are some things that can happen in the workplace or in the classroom that really squash that or stifle it? Some don'ts to look out for as we're trying to develop this sense of curiosity. Hmm. One of the things that we want to make sure to do is to not kill ideas too quickly. If you look at decision-making research, they talk about different phases of decision-making and creativity. And you want to start off with really high creativity, sort of that, that brainstorming mode, where it's not about the quality of ideas just yet. It's more about the quantity hmm. of ideas at first. And so the more that you can stimulate lots of ideas at the early stages of a project, the better. And then you can shift gears down the road into a more evaluative mode. So you're kind of fleshing out all these ideas. And you say, okay, let's start whittling these 30 down to something more manageable. So let's start voting. And then you get the top five ideas. And then you do another round of critiquing. But in that critiquing process, you're also saying, well, what else? How can we combine these ideas together? Let's look at these two comments, and at first they seem opposites, but maybe there's a way to bring them together. So one of the things to be sure to not do is bring criticism in too early into the creative process because it shuts people down. 
Mm. By contrast, if we're using these mindfulness practices, especially the ones around mindful interactions that we talked about before, showing compassion for yourself and then to others, listening to yourself and then to others, not judging yourself and then not judging others. As we do those things for ourselves and others, it creates a mindful environment that helps the creative juices flowing. Glenn, some of your research is also related to workplace identity and personal identity, and it seems that psychological safety and our identity in the workplace are also really closely linked. Talk to us a little bit about that connection, and then how does my sense of identity and a place to be safe in that identity then help me be a more curious and a more creative person. Mm-hmm. It is so important that we think about nurturing the whole self in the workplace. It's not like you walk through some cleansing machine that you know, strips you of your personality and your identity and your family history and your quirks. All of that stuff, to some degree at least, is coming into that workplace, whether the workplace is a big corporate building or a home office. And what mindfulness allows us to do is think about what these components are of ourselves how they show up at work, and are we happy with that, or do we want to change it? Mm. An example that we had in our Mindful Leadership Project was a woman, she said she realized that she had this label of perfectionist that she had claimed ever since she was a child. So she had given it to herself. Yes. Yeah. Like, I need to be a perfectionist. I have to get A's in all of my classes. She had that identity throughout junior high, high school, college, graduate school. And through mindfulness practices, she came to realize the dysfunctional parts of that label that she had put on herself in the sense that she was beating herself up when she didn't achieve perfection. And so by scrutinizing that label, she was able to say, I don't want to think of myself as a perfectionist anymore, but gosh, I've had that label for so long. How can I reframe it? Scrutinizing the labels that either we've put on ourselves or others have is really powerful and it gives us a lot of agency in terms of whether we want to keep that label, ditch it, or reframe it. I wanted to focus in on what you said, the labels we have for ourselves, like this example, I've labeled myself as a perfectionist, but now the labels that other people have for us or the way that we think people perceive us in a workplace, we have a little bit less control over that, but it seems that it could have just as much of an impact on how safe we feel or how curious we are. How do we investigate whether the way that we think people perceive us is actually true, right? Like when I was growing up, my dad would always say to me, no one is thinking about you as much as you think that they're thinking about you. So (laughs) don't... Don't make your choices based on what you think people think about you because they're probably not thinking about you at all. So sort of two parts here. How do we respond in a mindful way to the identities and labels that people give us? How do we also investigate in a mindful way whether those are actually the labels or identities that people have given us or whether it's just our perception? Your comment reminded me of an adage that a professor taught us way back when I was an undergrad He said, if you realized how rarely people thought of you, you wouldn't care what they thought of you. Yes. So true. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good mantra to keep in mind. Again, mindfulness is super helpful in doing this because what you're talking about in identity terms, we call that 
granting of an identity. Okay. So someone tells you you're a leader. Hey, you're the leader of our group. What? Says <laughs> hey, who? I, Since wait when? Wait a minute. Hey, <laughs> or they they give you a label. You're outgoing or you're extroverted or you're a perfectionist, whatever that label is. We can investigate that with curiosity, mindfully, and say, to what degree am I comfortable with that? What does that label even mean for me? So when someone puts something on you, that's called an identity grant. You may or may not accept that grant, right? Mm -hmm. When you say, here's who I am, that's called an identity claim. So I say, I am a professor. Other people may reaffirm and grant those identity states or labels, Mm -hmm. or they might challenge them. So if students say, well, you might be a professor, but you're a terrible professor, (laughs) right? They're not really granting me the identity that I want. So part of what we're doing in this is this little dance between claiming and granting of identities. And where mindfulness helps us to intervene is to say, well, what am I comfortable with? Whether the label came from me or someone else, what does that word mean? Do I want it or do I not want it? Do I want to change the meaning of it? Because maybe I keep the word, but change the meaning of it. And that's what mindfulness and curiosity can allow us to do with these identity labels that either we or others put on ourselves. So that was part one of the question. And the other part is how do we know if the things that people put onto us have any accuracy or not? There are a lot of exercises that we can do in terms of understanding our identity. One of them is called the reflected best self exercise. And I really love it. And I use it in a lot of the classes and workshops that I teach. The idea of the reflected best self-exercise is that you actually ask other people in your social network, past and present, for the positive qualities that you have. So tell me when I'm at my best. Tell me when you've seen me in the zone. Tell me when you've Mm. seen me happy. Tell me when you see me really thriving and not just sort of getting by. And you talk to lots of different people about that. And you do your own self-reflection. You might take personality tests like the Myers-Briggs, something like that. And you combine the data from other people and your own self-reflection, and you create a self-portrait. Here are my strengths. Here are the things that are important to me. Here's when I'm at my best. And what that allows us to do is kind of compare what other people are thinking about us with what we are seeing in ourselves. Mm. And the other thing I love about it is that because it takes a strengths-based approach, we don't have to be defensive. We don't have to sort of worry about the negative things that people might say. That would be a completely different exercise, which you could do. But the reflective best self exercise is really helpful in sort of understanding how others see me, how I see myself, and where there's congruence or incongruence. You and I have talked about this before, actually, that as we have that information, maybe it offers us an opportunity to claim an identity that we don't actually feel like we have yet, Mm -hmm. but that we want. I can't remember if I told you about this or not, but we did this in a big family gathering with my extended family. We all took personality tests for other people. It's like red is, um, these are big oversimplifications, but a kind of aggressive leader. Yellow and is blue is like emotional guilt. I remember like guilt like being really involved. Yeah. Or yeah. And then yellow is fun and white is super non-confrontational. Like yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. A, a peacemaker. The color code. Exactly. Yeah. 
So when I take that test for myself, I'm 50-50 red-blue, which is the worst possible personality combination, it turns out. The test even tells you that (laughs) because you're really aggressive and then you feel bad about it all the time. (laughs) I always really wanted to be yellow. I have like one speck of yellow and no white when I take it myself. But when my family members answered it, according to their perception of me, the kind of person that they thought I was... I came out with a lot of yellow. So then I thought, oh, well, maybe I am either more fun than I think I am. My perception of myself is not the same as as these people's perception of me. Or maybe they're seeing something that I can cultivate so that I can feel that way about myself. So a long-winded way to sort of say, what is the process or opportunity Once we understand this is kind of how I see myself, this is my reflected best self, according to the people who know me and love me the best, how can I now be curious about my identity and maybe test out a type of identity or a type of person that I want to be, but maybe don't feel like I am yet? Great question. We think about the difference between two words, identity and image. So identity... That's how we see ourselves, whereas image is how other people see us. Okay. Okay. This are, it's an oversimplification, but we'll use it. Yeah. Right? Okay. <laughs> We've got a lot of those in here <laughs> right? today. We'll, so. we'll, we'll use it. It's a handy terminology difference because looking at the tests that you took, you had an identity around certain colors that your family members didn't share. So let's say in your mind, to be a yellow, to be a fun person, you have a mental picture of what that looks like. And you're not at that picture, but maybe you're a seven out of a 10 mm-hmm. on what you think of as the ideal, fun, loving person. But for your family members, they look at you and say, that to me is the definition of a fun, loving person. So your behavior could actually be exactly the same, but the bar is so high for you to be a fun person that you haven't achieved it for your own identity, but others have achieved it in their image of you. So then you could say, okay, what is it about the way that I'm defining this fun-loving person that seems so far away from who I am? That's a really interesting thought experiment that you could take into a mindfulness session, like just sort of meditate on what does fun-loving look like for me? When have I shown it? When do I hold back? What would it take to show even more of it? Or just asking yourself some of those questions with curiosity could be very powerful. The other part of answering that question is what identity researchers call possible selves or Mm. provisional selves. And that's the idea of kind of like testing out an identity. This gets to the other part of the question. Yeah. So it's kind of like when you go shopping and you try on clothes, but a little more serious, right? (laughs) A little little longer. Depending on the clothes, maybe. That's right. (laughs) If you're you're going to an important gala, okay, (laughs) it's maybe very important which clothes you pick, right? So it's a little, a little... A little more complex, a little more detailed, but it's a similar idea that you could take some component of identity that maybe you haven't claimed before. So maybe that in your example, fun-loving, or it could be the identity of a leader, or it could be the identity of a highly collaborative team member, or it could be the identity of you know an engineer or an architect. It could be like a, a career kind of thing. So the idea of a provisional or possible self is that you start small and you try on a little bit. So if for a leader identity, if you're a student, right, you're not necessarily going to, well, I got to go be a CEO to see if I'm going to be a leader. 
But you might say, well, I want to take more leadership responsibilities in the next team project that I do and try some of this leadership stuff out. It can be very small scale and very experimental and see how it goes. So as by trying on these identities, sort of low risk, it allows us to see what fits and what doesn't and in what ways. And again, it might take multiple attempts for any of these identities and it might, it might be a multi-year process to see if, is this me? Is this who I want to be? Let's now to kind of bring it full circle to this idea of a beginner's mind, its relationship to curiosity and why it can be a hard thing to cultivate. It seems to me that it could be hardest to be a curious person with a beginner's mind for people who are in a situation where they either expect themselves or are expected by other people to have all the answers, right? So a teacher, a team leader, a CEO, these positions where either internally or externally, the expectation has been created that I always know what's going on, I always know the answer, or I should always know the answer, curiosity, can't thrive in that space. So how do we create it there? A couple of things come to mind to answer that. One is that we need to keep in mind that expectations can be negotiated. We don't have to accept them at face value. So we might think that people have these very firm expectations about what it means to be the leader, the teacher, mm -hmm. the professor, whatever the label might be that you're saying in this sort of powerful position. Expectations can be negotiated, where we can say to our quote-unquote followers, right, if we're a leader, here are the strengths that I have, and here's what I can bring to the table, here's what I'm really excited about, but I can't do everything. None of us is perfect, none of us has every facet of personality mm -hmm. mastered, no one has every arrow in the quiver needed. So let's think about what we can do together. Let's negotiate expectations about what I'll be really good at and what others will be really good at as we work together. So just not, not accepting the expectations that we think might be there, but rather negotiating that with the people that we're leading can be very powerful. So that's one. The second thing that comes to mind with your question is this idea of experimentation. We don't have to assume that whatever we do is permanent. And if we have kind of an experimentation mindset, that really helps with curiosity. Because an experimentation mindset says, you know what, we're going to take all the information available to us like a good scientist would. A scientist, when they put an experiment together, uses all the data available. They're using years and years of other studies and research to come to this moment where there's a question at hand. Well, we can do that with ourselves as leaders also. We can craft an experiment for ourselves, like a behavioral change experiment, like I want to be a better listener. I want to experiment with some of that. But we can also experiment in the organization and say, let's try some mindfulness practices. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in some mindful practitioners to teach us how to do these things for the next several months as an experiment, and we'll see what works and what doesn't. So it's not like as we make these decisions, we absolutely have to commit to them all the time forever. But an experimentation mindset allows us to say, hey, here's what we know so far. Let's try something new and see what we get. And trusting that the process is valuable, even if we come back and say, well, that wasn't the right 
thing that's not wasted time. Exactly. This is what really brilliant people do is they accept that there's going to be a lot of failures, but there's strategic failures and mm-hmm. they learn from the failures. That's part of the experimentation process. All right, Glenn, last question. <laughs> In your own life, what do you do personally or professionally to stay curious? Hmm. <laughs> I, uh, I, I literally have a question mark on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> So that helps. I love great questions. To me, asking the right questions in life is more fun and maybe more important than getting the right answers. Mm -hmm. And so I think by training ourselves to ask questions of ourselves and of other people, that's one of the best ways to be curious. Well, Glenn, it's been great talking to you today. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Eccles Business Buzz podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also leave us a rating and review. We'll be back in two weeks with another discussion about curiosity. And I really hope you'll tune in. Until then, follow us on Instagram at Eccles Alumni for all the latest news from your Eccles Alumni Network.